Welcome to All Things Africa, the podcast. Listen in as Levy, Mike, and Linda discuss socio-political and economic current events and how they affect Africans worldwide. On this episode of All Things Africa, we are continuing our discussion from the previous podcast. We want to know what are some cultural considerations in the battle against COVID-19 in Africa? What about political considerations? Let's pick up where we left off. I like that point. I think that's a, a much bigger picture point to think about what can we learn from this challenge, Right. from trying out right. different solutions and learning from them immediately. And I, I guess it's also being intentional about learning and being intentional about recording those lessons we learn from this particular challenge because challenges will always come, especially those that you know create these situation yeah. situations of unknown unknowns where you don't know what to do about them. But even for, for in, in case, for a case in point, um, South Africa, according, according to uh, certain experts, is that they were able to sort of take the lessons that they learned from the HIV epidemic and see how to move forward. And one of the things they learned is that you need to engage various stakeholders in the battle against HIV, and they've repeated learning from that. I like that point because it means that we can think in terms of how do we also just create relationships between government, communities, local government. Going back to the point, Mike, you made about trust and relationships. I I read a case uh, this weekend in Kenya. I don't know if you know this organization called Shofko. Uh, It's an organization that does work in slums in Kenya, in the two major slums in Kenya. And the leader of that organization is apparently in one of the government committees that's dealing with the COVID situation. And he was saying that as someone who is on both sides, where he sits in this committee on government, and on the other side is worked in Kebera and Madara, which are two big slums. When he goes back to their communities and works with them, what he finds is that people don't trust the government enough to actually go with what the government wants them to do. And he's also echoing that same message. We need to learn how to trust each other. We need to learn how to work together from top and bottom. Yeah, but because this is not, like Mike says, not the last challenge. But from this challenge, we can learn a lot. I agree. And I, I hope that most of these governments and these countries learn the importance of infrastructure. You know, having um, proper plumbing, <laughs> proper irrigation, um, proper, you know, electricity for people, um, proper, a good economy where people can find work, um, well-paying work that they can either save money for times like this, or those companies are able to support their income for a period of time um, if need be. And the the lack of all of these things is leading to the large number of cases. And you know, while the numbers may not seem that large in Africa, people have to remember that they're probably not testing as much as they are in other places, you know? And when you don't test, you can't confirm for sure whether people have COVID or not. Um, but if we notice the number of people dying in communities, you know, I don't know about your communities, but we've had a high number of people dying in our communities back home. And we know that it's related to people gathering. And after that, 
there's been a bunch of cases of people being sick and, and whatnot. And those that are capable of getting tests are tested and found positive, but others, you know, they don't know whether they're positive or not, but we see them getting sicker and sicker by the minute. And so we know that there's no other sicknesses going around. <laughs> so it's gotta be COVID in these situations. But I think of the number of cases that could be mitigated if people have access to water in their homes, um, have electricity in their homes, if they had employment opportunities that um, allow them to have a larger income so that they can save a portion of their money. Um, for times like these, because it's only those people, only those situations that are allowing people to be able to remain home and to be more socially distanced and lower their um, chances of spreading or catching the virus, you know. And so hopefully our governments are paying attention to the importance of these things because it's more than just um, money at the time, you know, it's, it's future concerns that come up. Um, that if you don't lay that proper infrastructure now, it makes it very difficult in times of a pandemic or any epidemic that you, you won't be able to properly um, win the hearts of the people. Because if you were properly providing services all along, there wouldn't be this distrust between government and the people. Um, if you've been providing our needs, then when the time comes, I trust that you'll be able to continue providing our needs through a pandemic. And that's part of exactly why if I was a if I was a politician, a corrupt politician in Africa or uh, an oligarch, to me this would tell me that in a certain infrastructure building project, economic empowerment is beginning to be a uh, minimum mm -hmm. for stable stability in African countries. Without that, you are constantly allowing an inflammatory environment to exist. And it will only take one thing. And you don't know when that thing is going to come. Yeah. <laughs> it, and you don't know when, what, what angle, you don't know. But as long as a certain environment is still prevailing, then there's that increased risk, especially with so many different things changing about societies today in, 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 or the world today. Yeah. You, I believe, just like what you're saying, not even from beyond that, there's a certain, just for stability, there's a certain minimum we need to get to yeah. before, uh, you know, so it's in the interest, in my opinion, it is in the interest of even the corrupt politicians Yes. to now make sure that infrastructure is actually built, you know, so. Yeah, I think I it, it, it is the whole idea of the system, right? It doesn't have to be just health system, but it could be health system, economic system, uh, political system, how you take the lessons you're learning from this situation that has revealed the weaknesses mm -hmm. in that system and think proactively, like Mike is saying, in terms of, how do you think proactively, but also think futuristically in the sense that you don't just prepare for today, you don't react to today as a government, but how do you also think proactively in terms of the future? How do you sort of prepare for the future? You know, some of the uh, studies that have looked at some of the Asian countries that have been able to uh, sustain, this is not, I mean, a few of them have not had a high number of cases. And what they found was that what happened is that in those countries, 
they already had experience from the previous strains of SARS, which, you know, COVID is sort of that strain. Mm -hmm. And because of those previous experiences, when they reacted during that particular period, they built hospitals, they built emergency hospitals, they sort of built all these facilities, bought equipment, and had all these things in place ready for the next one. And it was, you know, it was partly reacting to that particular strain at that particular moment. But even then, there was already sort of emergency sort of facilities built in that reaction so that if it ever comes back again, that was a great opportunity to prepare for what the future may look like or may come. And I guess in this case, you know, even if you take, for example, during lockdown, I, I read this um, case of Nairobi metropolitan uh, area where the head of Nairobi metropolitan was saying, you know, uh, during lockdown, people are at home, the streets are empty, everything is sort of available for us to work on and repair and rebuild and be ready to go back because there is an opportunity within that moment to do what you couldn't do. Traffic is less, you don't have to deal with diverting traffic, people are at home. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, it's opportunistic, but it's actually, you have a chance to mm -hmm. do what you couldn't do because that window may never come again that easy. And so this could be a good time for governments to think in terms of doing exactly those things that prepare for the next challenge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or don't wait until it's election time to start paying people off. How about buying them food now? Buy the food and send it to where they are, right? <laughs> we, we understand the, the corrupt behaviors of some politicians, but you know maybe this is a good time for them to win the hearts of people by taking care of them through this pandemic, you know? That might work. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever keeps the people alive. <laughs> but, but to your point earlier, it comes back to doing it with an understanding of everyone's perspective, doing it with empathy, mm -hmm. uh, being ethical about it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, balance, now governments are having to balance between what's good for individuals like what's good for the elderly who may be individuals, what's good for society. Because now you see some decisions that are made for the society as a whole, but they may not be necessarily good for the individual because there is an ethical question there in the sense that if it's good for the society, then from an ethical and a moral perspective, the question should be that the individual should not be forgotten. Mm -hmm. But also to your point earlier, Linda, that the experiences of women and the experiences of children, the experiences of a lot of people have to be taken into consideration because mm -hmm. they could be in the moment, forget that other people have valid experiences that could inform what should be done. Like you documented in detail very well, the experience of a woman who wakes up and feeds the family and goes to the market and comes home and continues to do these things. Mm -hmm. And that particular lived experience has a lot of insights that could inform what needs to be done, not for this moment, but just thinking in terms of what are the values that moving forward sustain mm -hmm. a society that has a culture of taking care of everyone, even in the moment of crisis. Mm -hmm. Have you guys heard this conspiracy theory that the governments could be doing a better job, but they're not because um, that will cut off their access to funding, COVID funding? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Heard of that. Heard of that as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, of that. yeah, because mm -hmm. the higher the number, the more help financially that they could get. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. So you can kind of extend. And and you know that that mindset has been around for a long time, right? I think that's partly why some 
some countries are so dependent on aid because they get they if they have aid money coming in to handle food or you know health services all those things then you know the leadership can just pocket whatever money they bring in from actual sectors that you know there that are being managed you know uh, whether it's agriculture or primarily this happens a lot with oil countries where you know they have all this oil money but somehow they're not able to provide services they can't build infrastructure they're not doing any of those other things and it's because they depend on that foreign money to come in and take care of those other issues for them so that they can continue to pocket money because they have the funds <laughs> but then they, they and it could be it also could be like you say you know it, it's one of those things where it might not even necessarily be about the dependency but it could also be about uh seeing an opportunity yeah. to you know get enriched by because contracts will be facilitated through mm -hmm. the funding yes you know which as we know could then be distributed to use mm -hmm. you know um certain connected individuals so it might not even be about the dependent they just know this is a gap this is not going to last forever so yeah. we can get a contract to i don't know distribute math to the current to the country or something like that yeah if it works out you know. Yeah, and we know this has to be true because a lot of those places that say, oh, we have no tests, we have no tests, but then certain individuals are able to get tests. So where the where they get a test from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess even, even in the timing of the even in the timing of the availability of things like gloves and sanitizer, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that yeah. Mm -hmm that two-week gap or where one person has the dominance in the market yeah. and then before, you know, more supplies arrive, that's could, that's significant, yeah. you know, opportunity to be enriched. And I think in, in some countries, COVID happened at a time when the context was full of corruption. The tendering process was full of corruption accountability was lacking. And so what happens in those kinds of contexts is something like this just creates more opportunities for those who are benefiting yes. from those um, ill-structured processes and from those corrupt mm -hmm. practices. Because for them, mm -hmm. the situation continues to be a situation about profiting, right? So they've always thought of the situation as a profiting situation and now more resources to profit from. And so the lesson to be learned then is that, you know, if you're talking about lessons, we need to have more accountable systems. We need to have tender processes that can be scrutinized thoroughly. Because in the event that you face another situation and that doesn't change, which is a good point Mike you brought, you will still end up with the same problems. Mm -hmm. if, if the newspaper accounts in Kenya were accurate or are accurate to go with, the earlier sort of stages of dealing with COVID were marred by cases of disappearing funds. Mm -hmm. The newspapers were tracking these funds and I'm going by them because the stories are there. Mm -hmm. They were tracking these funds and there was no paperwork for disbursing funds. No one was able to answer questions that were easy to answer. Money was disappearing instead of going where it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And so you do have that immediate greed that kicks in when more money starts coming in and this money was being generously given 
but it, it's, a, it's a very structurally deep rooted problem in yeah. certain places where it's you have to go deeper in terms of what are these causes of corruption and horrible tender processes that create these opportunities for those who see this as a profiting situation as opposed to a situation to improve their lives and prevent deaths for others. Mm-hmm. And that has happened here too, eh? it has happened here also. Oh, yes. There have been yeah. things mm-hmm. that have been brought to light that really yeah. are exactly the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, out of greed mm-hmm. and opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a challenge of society because for society, you always have some people who see it as an opportunity. Some people see it as a situation to save lives. Some people see it. I remember um, one leading health expert in the U.S., asked a very poignant question is how many more deaths do you have to sustain in order to justify economic growth? Mm-hmm. And that's a not an easy question to answer, but then you do see how you have someone who may be looking at his perspective of, we need to reopen so economy can grow, which is what we are seeing even right now today, mm-hmm. that discussion of economies need to grow, so let's stay open. And then you have cases of uh, COVID increasing significantly and Others saying, well, if we go back to lockdown, then economy will crash and, you know, all these other people, yes, you can save them. So it's not an easy situation to solve. But the point is that in this situation, there are a lot of people looking at it from different perspectives. Yes. And maybe the truth to recognize is to, it's as hard as it is, is to account for what perspectives are shaping the reactions that are being taken those who see it as economic, those who see that a health problem, those who see that a philosophical problem, those who see that are, they, will, they, will, they will all be all these dimensions to think about the situation from. And if you ignore them, then you end up realizing some people just were in it for their money. And that's, that's it. There was nothing else they were in it for. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when you think about how many people have to die in order for us to shut things back down, right, for economic reasons. And a a part of that question needs to be, who is it that's dying that we're okay with? Because, you know, especially here in the U.S., what we've seen is that it's a a large percentage of those that are dying are African Americans and uh, minority communities and low-income communities. And so if they are not my voting base, then I don't care if they're dying, right? And that's what um, unfortunately is starting to happen is for political reasons, they will reopen economy because who votes for them wants the economy open. But who votes for them is not not the population that's dying out. And so there's, they don't care quite as much (laughs) because it's not their voting base. Now, if, if it was a different president and a, uh, or you know, if that, that, that voting base was the one that was at risk, then it would be a different situation. And yeah. I think that's important to know because I'm sure we could probably see this in, in Africa as well. If, if a leader is in power, their communities are usually taken care of somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, they will mm-hmm. move even state funds to take care of their community. But they won't. But they will ignore the other communities, or they don't mind that the other communities are deteriorating, because they're not their base. Mm-hmm. They're and not the ones the, that keep them in power. And that's the that's the thing that we were saying earlier. So you have you just like you're saying, 
you have you're ignoring this base that you don't really have to deal with hmm. right hmm. but now that same base is one of the pressure points that is then threatening you and yeah. your agenda yeah. and mitch mcconnell um mitch mcconnell said and i'm going to rephrase he said that he was, he was talking about in terms of the need to um, look at police reform, right? And he, whatever he said, I don't want to paraphrase wrongly, he basically um, agreed. Now, it could be political maneuvering. He basically agreed that it is time to look at, you know, what could be reformed about policing. Now, it could be complete political maneuvering, but the fact that it is a maneuver that he has to pay attention to in order yeah. to make. Yeah, he was forced to it. Yeah. Is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is a point not to be ignored. Mm-hmm. And the source of that need is coming from this base that you were ignoring, that now you're realizing that the top of the Republican Party is realizing we need to think about how we can pivot more towards some kind of positioning or messaging that is, you know, um, reflective of our, reflective of some kind of desire to work towards some kind of reforms. And um, if you you think about the African um, context, lesson of that, as you were saying, you can't keep, if you keep, um, if you, if your policies and 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 your style of governing is geared towards favoring either one or a small group of uh, ethnic groups or or people, eventually that side that you are ignoring, maybe by design, is going to threaten whatever agenda that you have in the first place, whatever selfish agenda that you have in the first place. So um, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting sort of parallel that I was kind of gathering from what you were saying. And, you know, but whether that's a lesson that's taken is a whole other <laughs> question. Yeah. I like that question yeah. that Linda posed in terms of who is dying, you know, who is being, you know, I, I, the, the thing is the, the, the bias we, as humans have is, you know, I may be in my house and say, oh, COVID is not affecting me, so I'm going to roam around and not care about it and not wear the mask when I need to wear it uh, because I feel some invincibility, right? And I feel like I can protect my family. But I think the empathy, going back to the point of empathy you were talking about is to be empathetic to that person who gets affected by COVID and to learn the experiences of someone who's affected by COVID. It is not nice. It is, it is difficult. You know, if you think about even in a context, let's say like Mikey is talking about uh, back in Africa, when we have this fabric of society where we are so connected that one person's, especially let's say it's a breadwinner who gets sick, that can actually be very detrimental for all the people who depend on that person because these intergenerational houses are very dependent on individuals' ability to bring something to the table. And if you think about it in that framework of a community, one person is, is just, that number we say as one more person died, could mean many more things if you think about how many more people get affected when one more, when one more person dies. How many children will have less food to eat? How many people will 
not be able to have that piece they need in that house? How many people will be running around to make sure this person gets medicine? How many more people will have to... So if you think about the scale of one person dying is... Because I've had these cases, people say, oh, we only have 8,000 cases in Africa of death. But if you think about that one person who died and how many are affected by that one person, and how if you multiply those 8,000 who died by how many people who are connected to them, then maybe people will understand the scale of the problem. Instead of saying, oh, that's why to get to bigger numbers like the US to be worried. But it's not the same context. It's a different context. A lower number of deaths could still be very detrimental to so many more people. I think you make a great point there. If we keep looking at the numbers like they're just numbers and not people, you miss the point and you're able to make decisions that impact people just because it's a small number. You know, I think about even the Black Lives Movement here in America that has kind of caught fire across across the world. It It's about humanizing those numbers, right? You, you instead of just saying it's just a number, you, you tell George Floyd's story, you see it. And, you, and they got this campaign going, um, say their names, right? So you say their names because then you realize it's a real person and you meet their families on those things and you talk about what it all impacts and he has a daughter and all of these things start to unravel and then it builds more consensus of like, no, this is a real problem because it was easy to just say, oh, it's only 600 black men that are getting killed every day but it's hard to say, you know what, is this black man who's involved with his church, who had a child, who was improving his life, and then this tragedy took place, right? And so now you're able to build a consensus like, no, this is not fair, this is not fair. Previously, there were just numbers, and if their name was brought up, then the media might bring up a story about how they were previously a criminal, and it just begs the question, right? Or avoids it, avoids it, avoids it. Let's move away from making this person seem like a real person. And I think that's important with the with the coronavirus is we're not getting enough individual stories out there. Part of it is stim- stigma. People don't want to share that they mm-hmm. had it and they don't want to let anybody know. Even if they survived it, they don't want to tell people. But by doing that, then you're putting a face to the disease and uh, to the virus and to the issue and so that people can actually pay attention to it. So when, I'm, when I see that, you know, the U.S. has over 2 million, too many, two million people with the virus, it's a real number, you know, it's like, it's a small, it's a city within the state of Florida, a whole city could be affected. That's huge. You know, you got to put it in terms that we can understand and people have to share their stories more so that they realize it's a real thing. When when I hear people talking about, yeah, before the virus, I was able to do X, Y, Z. Now I've lost my job. The, The stimulus that was supposed to cover supposedly supposed to cover three months of of bills and expenses twelve hundred dollars it's like you're completely out of touch government who said who can live on twelve hundred dollars for three months that's ridiculous in this u.s right so it it reminds you of of the real challenges on the ground while the government goes oh this is a fix this is a fix we've already done this we've already done that when you hear from people on the ground you realize that the the, the severity of the situation and the the human aspect to it which should create some empathy yeah. now when i think about these politicians yeah they do need to pay attention to these communities that are not that they 
don't think is important because that's how uprisings happen, right? For a period of time, the people just deal with it, they deal with it, they deal with it, they deal with it. something eventually will break the, the camel's back, right? That'll be the straw that did it. It's just way too heavy. And when that comes, that time comes, you're, you're gone, you know, you'll be overthrown or they will push you out of office or whatever the case is, they'll finally show up and they'll make enough and noise. And, and, and so, and, and not just that, it, it could also be that seed yeah. that then develops into something mm -hmm. else. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard um, um, some of the stories around why certain um, um, geopolitic, geopolitical realities are what they are. Mm -hmm. And if you follow the backstory, it just backdates into some, some set of events that are so far removed mm -hmm. from what it is today, but there was a seed mm -hmm. that the outcome started to go from. Yeah. And it's, it's stuff like this that, you know, even if as a government, you might not, you might feel confident in your ability to um, sort of manage any, um, maybe drop in confidence in the government that come that might come out of this, you still are vulnerable to whatever seed it has, it has already implanted. Yeah. And you have to do better either way because mm -hmm. you, 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 they, there's probably a, 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 a risk to you that's nurtured, that's nurturing in the, in the environment. That's what I was saying. That, that inflammatory environment, it just, it's, uh, to me, it's, becoming a, a if you want stability in your country because just like you're saying you never know what that 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 whatever that last straw yeah is going to be mm -hmm. it it could be you never know yeah i like that point of stability because you know when when you just look at the numbers in the u.s and say okay in the u.s we are looking at two point something million and you say, oh, in Africa, we're looking at 330 or so thousand. And you say, oh, cases are not that many. Mm -hmm. but, but I guess it goes, if we go back to that point about the fabric of the society, it's, it's not the same. I mean, if you think about the 300,000, you have to think about multiplying it in terms of how many more people are affected and one more, one person gets affected in those contexts. Mike made this very good point about in the case in the US, you can approach it as an individual and say, I'm an individual, so this two point something million could account for the individual, arguably. But in, in a case where society depends on communal living or communal assets, assisting each other, living in the house together as a group, and maybe Linda, let's, let me take you for example. Let's say Linda gets sick, and Linda is hit by COVID, and Linda is working hourly, and Linda has been set back for two weeks to stay home and not work. You can just imagine how many more people Linda represents. Like that one person you thought of in that house as Linda, her being sick affects about six to seven other people who depend on that job, right? So that number, yes, death is different from living standards or death is different from well-being. But the well-being of those who get affected because that one person dies is huge. And even let's say one person dies and you have to find money to bury that person in, in a context where people fundraise for each other and do all these things. And then you have everybody's broke. The stress that comes with it is also so significant. So we can be so focused on death 
and forget all those other sort of factors that are related to that death that bring down the well-being of people and destabilizes societies that depend on that structure to hold. Join us for the next episode of All Things Africa with Levy, Mike, and Linda. To get instant notifications on new episodes, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to our podcast. Or find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash allthingsafrica. Follow us on Twitter and keep the conversation going with the hashtag allthingsafrica.